Father, as we have sung this morning about the riches of your marvelous grace, we confess that we are the richest among all peoples because we have taken claim to the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We have done so not by any work of our own merit, not by any goodness inside of us, but only because you in your amazing grace and mercy reached low into the heart of a sinner and did a miracle, awakened our eyes to see our transgression of your holy law, where we had fallen short of your glory, revealed to us your holiness and the punishment that a just God requires of such an egregious offense against his holy character. And we also saw by the Spirit opening up our eyes that Jesus Christ took that payment for us on Calvary. And so now as we sing, as we cry, give me Jesus, to the exclusion of all other promises and all other advertisements of this world, we recognize that in Christ alone is the precious hope of eternal life. And let in our affections and our mind and on our value calculations, let everything of this world grow strangely dim, we pray, in the light of that marvelous truth and glorious grace of Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our well springing forth unto living water, eternal life, reunion, communion, fellowship with the Holy God, purchased by His work on Calvary. As we turn to your scriptures this morning, I pray that our eyes would be further open to the beauty of the connections across the pages of sovereign history, showing us, Lord, in so many ways how beautifully planned, how excellently articulated through your prophets, those equipped your, through uh, delivering your God-breathed word, prophets and the like, Lord, and how amazingly and perfectly timed redemption was accomplished all through the course of your sovereign timeline. I pray that you would open our eyes to appreciate this even more. And finally, as we turn to your word, if there are any lost who have not repented and believed in Jesus Christ for their salvation, I pray that you would draw them through the proclamation of your word to turn from their sins and to place their hope of redemption in Jesus who died in their place. Thank you, Lord, for these precious moments that your grace has purchased for us. Help us to value them, and I pray that the fruit of this morning's service would glorify you by application beyond this place as we seek to live it in a lost and dying world. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, as the gathered assembly, the people of God, we have the glorious privilege of turning to our precious gift, the precious gift of His Holy Word. As we do so, I'd encourage you to open up your Bibles to Genesis 17. There are two groups of scriptures we will consider at length this morning in Genesis 17. They are verses 1 through 9 and verses 15 through 21. This morning's message comes to you under the title, Covenant Names. The importance of name in the context of covenant is what we will consider. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to communicate the significance of God's choice in names. You might ask the question, why did God choose Abraham to name Abram uh, at this moment in covenant history, Genesis 17? Why did God choose Sarah to substitute for Sarai? Why did God choose Ishmael? Why did God choose Isaac? You see, there's an important concept behind God's sovereign choice of names. So what significance might we learn here? And just as an introductory note, as again, you're turning to Genesis 17, there are two major themes, as I take it anyway, in Genesis 17. One is the significance of name, and the second is significance of covenant sign. We'll set covenant assign, a covenant sign aside for this week to consider at a later message and focus our attention on names. Would you stand as you're able once again, out of reverence for God's holy word, and let us hear the holy word of God proclaimed to us from ages past, and listen in your hearing as I read it for you today, Genesis 17, 1 through 9, 15 through 21. Here is the word of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, 
Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you, to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And we pick up in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant and for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. This is the word of God. You may be seated. A bit of review and background for you that will help set the context and tone for our message today. In prior messages, we've noted how a biblical philosophy of history, if you will, might be summarized by this phrase. This is on the first line of your notes, if you have them. Quote from a prior message, time measured by the progress of redemption. So how does the Bible organize, interpret, and record history? A philosophy of history, a biblical philosophy of history. Well, a phrase that could well describe it, may I submit, time measured by the progress of redemption. In any culture, we measure time by certain significant events. We even live in an era where people are seeking to overthrow certain points of reference culturally that we find important and replace them with others. I am a huge fan of retaining the A.D., B.C. distinctions, and I will always commit in my own soul to recognizing and marking time as to that which happened after Christ came and that which before, happened before He came. Why? Because history is, in truth, time measured by the progress of redemption. And there is no way to understand your own significance, meaning, and importance in where you are born and what the future might hold and the significance of the past unless you have the right milestones. The scripture lays out what most milestones are. They are the progress of God's plan to glorify himself through the redemption of a people under the praise of his great name, through the means prescribed all the way back indeed to Abraham. Accordingly, the historical context of Genesis, or even more broadly, Old Testament narrative, might be compared to a necklace. So think of a necklace, a string, and beads or jewels, okay? We've used this analogy before. But imagine that string is the timeline of Genesis, or all of history, and the jewels on that string are moments of particular redemptive historical significance, moments of particular significance that are highlighted in the life of the earth, as it were, in the history of mankind throughout the course of the, the book of Genesis. It's like a necklace, the timeline being the string, the jewels being these significant moments. Well, you could extend this or narrow, take this concept and narrow it, in fact, to Abram's life itself. So just like, broadly speaking, these events are highlighted in light of their importance according to God's plan, things like 
the flood, or let's go back even further, creation, the fall, the flood, the patriarchs, the calling of significant sons. This analogy also applies to Abraham's life specifically. There are moments that are highlighted which have particular significance in Abraham's life that represent significant moments in God's broader plan to glorify himself through the salvation of an elect people. As such, our last few chapters in Abraham's life have been marked by divine visitation. God himself has visited his servant on a number of occasions, and we've marked these in recent chapters. These moments, we call them visitate, divine visitation, revelation, or a technical term, theophany, which is the tangible presence of God revealed to the faculties of man, God actually showing up in a way that man could hear or see, let's say. These moments when God communicates directly or immediately to his servant have happened over a some 25-year span. For some 25 years, God has visited Abram at Bethel upon entering the promised land, for instance. And he visited him upon parting ways with Lot. That first reference is chapter 12, verse 7. The second reference is chapter 13, 14 through 18. And then a third visitation upon the defeat of the coalition of kings from the north, we call the Keter-Laomer coalition in chapter 15. God appears once again to Abram after that significant event. And then God appeared in our last chapter, chapter 16, to Hagar herself, the angel of the Lord, appears to her. And now the story picks up, the account of Abraham, some 13 years after the birth of Ishmael, and we see here unfolding um, a, a, a fourth visitation, if you will, in this chain of God's appearances. God appears to the patriarch yet again in our text today with further covenant revelation. God's plans are unfolding to Abraham over his lifetime. Each encounter adds more detail and clarity, reminding us that faith for every believer involves a trust that some of the aspects of our eternal hope and the purposes of God, which are yet uh, in seed form, will be revealed in greater shades of glorious understanding as His decree is unveiled, unveiled in the fullness of time. Let me summarize that in more simple language. As Abraham understands more of God's plan for him sequentially through the course of his life, he is modeling a posture of faith that you and I can relate to. There are certain questions that trouble us. Why was God doing this at our time in history? Or why does God allow X in his prescribed trials for his people? Or what is his purpose in this or that event even now as we struggle to reconcile the news with God's sovereignty? As we think about that, we are reminded of the faith of Abraham, that just as God revealed clear and clearer over time his purposes for Abram, because he was asking questions like, how in the world can God's promises be true when I'm like 100 years old? My wife is pushing 90, and we have no children yet, biological children between us. And you can see him cynically doubting at times or uh, wrestling with the temptation to be discouraged and so forth. Well, his faith is increased by the means of God revealing more clearly over time, and so he does for us. We are very privileged. We live in a time when the canon is closed, the full, uh, sufficient binding of God's Word in written form it, we have immediate access to, and so we have even more clarity in some ways than Abraham did or Abram did at that time. Nevertheless, there is yet a posture of faith that is required for every believer as God reveals his glorious plans over time. Purposes of God, which are yet in seed form, will continue to flower as his purposes unfold like jewels on the chain or that string of history's timeline. In the patriarch, Abraham, our forefather's biography, God appears in our text today to clarify that the child of promise will in fact be born to Abraham and Sarah despite their age and despite their doubts. And so let us consider our text today under this heading, Context of Covenant Clarified Through Four Names. The context of this covenant with Abraham can be clarified by considering four names. 
Number one, God's name, God Almighty or El Shaddai. Number two, the context of covenant is clarified through an understanding of Abraham's name. Number three, Sarah's name, his wife. And number four, their son's name, Isaac. El Shaddai, Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. Their names all are significant to help us understand the context of covenant revealed in Genesis 17. Let us consider first the name of God. As you know, there are many names for God throughout Scripture. Why does God choose this particular one? Genesis 17:1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Set those phrases next to one another. Abraham was 99 years old, and as we find him saying his wife is 90. But on the other side of the coin, I am, the Lord says, God Almighty. That is to say, mighty enough to give a child to a 99 and 90-year-old couple? Yes, indeed, that is true. You see here a principle that is recurring in Scripture. God in His gracious condescension, which means stooping low to meet us where we're at, which means communicating himself to a lowly creature such as you and I, oftentimes the revelation of God is calibrated, if you will, or it matches, if you will, the need or the frailty of the individual. Abraham needed to know that God was mighty because he was struggling with the fact that he was so old and God's promises of a biological child through him and his wife were as yet unrealized. This had happened before, Genesis 15, 1. After these days, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. In other words, set those two phrases side by side again. Fear not. So Abraham is struggling with fear. On the other hand, I am your shield. You see how the Lord reveals himself as an implement of war, as a force to protect him against anything that might declare Abram his enemy and say, I am sufficient to preserve you through these things. Abraham was struggling with fear. God reveals himself as his shield. In chapter 16, what was Hagar struggling with? Well, no doubt a million things as this destitute, slave, abandoned mistress of her maidservant is condemned, runs away. There is tension between her and her master, Saria, and she runs into the wilderness of Shur, a region north of Egypt, and she has all but given to complete despair until what? The angel of the Lord, God, reveals himself to her. And what name does she ascribe to him? The God of seeing. The Lord saw Hagar in the wilderness, though she thought, thought no doubt and felt abandoned beyond all hope of redemption. The Lord nevertheless revealed himself to her as the God of seeing. So God's name is significant. When he says, I am the Almighty God, I am El Shaddai, there are these connotations that we find. This is a little work I did by way of research, commentary. These are ideas that are connected to this name of God throughout the course of its revelation through the Bible. God's name as El Shaddai indicates it's a divine, divine character of the Lord is featured in his name such that we understand him as El Shaddai, the author of existence and performance. He is the one who is responsible for things being in the first place. He is the one who has always been before time, never was not, and is also the responsible for the power and performance and maintenance of all things. He is, in other words, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is lasting, eternal, absolute. He is irresistible and unchangeable. There's a sort of twofold a reference to the Lord in this holy name, God Almighty and El Shaddai. On the one hand, He is judicial and punitive. He punishes rightly and justly according to His standards of justice, shortcomings according to His law. But on the other hand, <clears throat> He is providential and reconstructive, and He has the power to redeem. So the name El Shaddai can, communicates both this uh, uh, punishment for sin and regeneration and the furtherance of His holiness, both power and promise. And in two words, you could summarize El Shaddai's emphasizing these two things, power and promise. And what a great thing for Abram to hear at this time. I have the power to give a child as though raising one from the dead to a couple that is in their 90s. 
And this is according to my promise, which is more sure than any other biological, scientific, or whatever cynical reality that you're struggling to believe over my word. I am the God of the supernatural. Nature obeys my law because I have prescribed those laws for him. There is no sovereign over me. I am the one who directs and dictates, yes, even each fertilization of each egg and sperm within the womb of each human individual at every single moment through the course of entire history, and I will do it again in the womb of your wife. What are you struggling with today? I don't want to move on without taking opportunity for application. I'll tell you what's been a wrestling, what I've been wrestling with lately is the feeling that our world is falling apart. So what I've taken refuge in of late is where the Psalms teach us that when the world totters, it is God who steadies its pillars. The Lord meets you in His Word right where your greatest need and frailty and doubts are. So why don't you go to His Word if you're like me and need to be reminded that when the earth appears to be shaken on its foundations, it is God who steadies its pillars and it will never be overthrown. Are there other examples of things we wrestle with? Well, there's a hundred, there's a thousand. But I guarantee you this. Search God's word and see if he is not faithful. For everything that you might wrestle with by way of cynicism, doubts, and fears, discouragement, despair, and depression, and so on, all of the full range of human frailty that we wrestle with in a post-fall world, search the word and see if there is not a revelation of God who demonstrates himself to be through his powerful and authoritative word sufficient to transcend that limitation or that failure. And you will find in every single case, the Lord is King of kings, Lord of lords, absolutely sufficient, knows the end from the beginning, and will satisfy in his perfect time, his perfect plan, even for us who are lost in our sins. And if, is that not the greatest example of all? To our sin, God has responded, I am your Savior. To our failure to live up to His standards, He has sent His Son incarnate into history to die in our place. The greatest thing that represented a failing, indeed, uh, the uh, sin and the judgment that we deserved as a result of our, the condition of our hell-bent soul has been responded to and transcended proportionally by God's great power and promise in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the cross, He reveals Himself according to His power and promise as our El Shaddai, God's name. God's name is further emphasized its importance by the presence of God in the way He reveals Himself to Abram. He comes in theophonic form, if you will, again, that adjective form of an appearing of God in a way that His servant can actually tangibly interact with. It says in verse 1, Abraham was 90 years old and the Lord appeared to Abram. And we're starting to get a record of God's appearance. One reference that comes to mind now is in 1517. Here's another appearance, a theophany of God to Abram. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, now there are two ways that God revealed himself in passing through the pieces. Kids, do you remember what they were? How did God show himself to Abram when he passed through the pieces? Anyone remember? Anyone remember? Ah, oh, very good. I heard smoke and fire. That's correct. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And we reference this, we cross-reference this to the picture of fire, the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud by day leading the children of Israel out of their exodus. And we could imagine a circumstance where we could not even see the top of that pillar of fire. Why? Because it's a physical manifestation of the glory, the magnitude, the power, and the promise of God. So would it not reach way up into the heavens? And in this instance here, it's almost as if some uh, scholars have speculated that the tower of fire and the tower of smoke may have almost taken on a uh, human-like form walking through the pieces and the towers of these plumes of fire and smoke reaching up into the heavenlies. We can let our imaginations uh, speculate what form this might have taken. Or we can put ourselves in Moses' shoes where God reveals himself as a flame that needs no fuel, the self-existent eternal one, as he appears in this burning bush. And what does Moses immediately do upon the commandment of God Almighty? Take off your shoes, for this ground is holy. We're talking the presence of God and the posture of man that emphasizes God's glory in all these occasions. 
God reveals himself, we have perhaps a clue in 1722 when it says God went up from Abraham that he perhaps came down in one of these pictures, perhaps fire or cloud. And then as Abraham uh, re- is aware of God's presence, he does the only thing one should do. In verse 3, Abram fell on his face. Just like Moses took off his shoes because it was a posture that was appropriate for the presence of the Holy One. And just as Ezekiel was struck down and lay face first on the dirt as he saw the Lord revealed in vision. And just as John the Revelator, so to speak, in the final book in the Bible, Revelation, is laid low before the glory of God, so Abram assumes that same position here. And it communicates something. If there was something lower than the ground, I would assume that posture. In the presence of a holy and mighty God, I am assuming in this posture, I am recognizing the truth of the difference between God and myself. He is my Lord. He is my sovereign. He has authority over me. In this picture of God's presence and the posture of Abraham, we see communicated submission and honor. The creaturely status of Abraham, the gravity of this situation, the privilege to be in his presence, the holiness of God uh, shining forth, no doubt, depending on the particular manifest form, so on and so forth. So the presence of God in the posture of his servant communicate to us the context of this covenant. This is a promise that was demonstrated in a manifestation of power that was meant to communicate to Abram and his lineage, spiritually speaking, you and I, that he has the ability to accomplish that which he promises to perform. If God himself can interrupt the day of Abraham with a fire cloud that reaches up into the heavenlies, can he not sovereignly touch the womb of an aged woman and cause her to have an extraordinary conception of a significant son who will carry forth the covenant line? Absolutely. And you see, even in the New Testament, this posture and presence of the Lord associated with Christ himself. When the eyes of the disciples are open to the holiness of Jesus Christ, what is What do his servants cry as they realize that vast perspective of his glory and their sinfulness? Peter says, depart from me. I am undone. I have a man sinful, unworthy of your presence. Echoing the same concept of Isaiah, was it in chapter 6, in that temple vision where his eyes are open to the glorious manifestation of the Lord and he cries out that he is a man of unclean lips. So the context of covenant is clarified through the power and promise communicated by God Almighty and His El Shaddai name. And that's only magnified in the context here when we see the posture that a man of faith, Abram, rightly assumes in laying himself low. And one point of application might be this. In this posture, Abraham is exemplifying a response that is appropriate for God and His Word. What devotion... What worship does God deserve and how do we encounter Him? When we encounter His holy word, we have made it a practice in our body here to stand out of reverence. It's the same idea. It's a biblical way that people have honored the proclamation of God's word in the past and hopefully a helpful reminder that when God's word is spoken, we're encountering the stated facts of the absolute sovereign of the universe who holds our future and our destiny in the palm of his hand and has purchased our future and destiny by the second person of the Trinity's pierced palm for us. And so what response does that deserve? It deserves a a response of reverence and fear and submission and worship and to be awed and amazed at the glory of the Lord revealed in such awesome ways. Finally, under God's name, as He reveals Himself as God Almighty, He makes some demands. There's something of a king-to-subject relationship, in other words. In terms of covenant, this would be understood at the time. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. That indicates the blessings and the dimension of the covenant, but there are also some demands. In other words, God gave instructions to Abram, laid out some ethics for him, if you will. He says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, in verse 1. Demands and dimensions, or ethics and blessings that are part and parcel of this covenant. 
And this is language similar, we don't have time to go there, but on your own time, you might cross-reference Genesis 5.22, wherein we see Enoch revealed as one who walked with God, and his testimony is expanded in Hebrews chapter 11. We also see Noah as a man called out for a covenant head and a position of importance, a significant son, if you will, in chapter 6, verse 9. It's said of Noah also that he walked with God and that he was blameless before the Lord. Now, in all of these cases, and especially in Abram, we see that Abram's blamelessness was not due to his own righteousness, but in fact, his righteousness followed the sovereign work of God in his life. After all, Paul expands on this when he says, was it circumcision, the covenant sign, that declared Abram righteous? No, he was declared righteous by faith far long before that covenant sign was prescribed and obeyed. Suffice it to say, in the sequence of revelatory events in Abraham's life, we see here an aspect of justification and an aspect of authority. This is the king, the Lord of glory, commanding his subject to obedience. And this is his subject having his heart changed, a man of faith, although shaken at times, nevertheless growing, especially by these means, a man of faith lying down before the Lord and in obedience, in surrender, in submission. And that's the picture here. The demands of the covenant that Abram would serve no other gods, that Abram would defer to no other authority higher or beside the Lord is part and parcel to these terms. And then the promise, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Again, a God-sized project, a God-sized promise given the fact that this couple yet remains barren into their 90s. You see the context of the covenant clarified through God's name. Second major name we'll consider is Abraham himself. So kids, uh, Abraham, what did his name used to be? Abram. And then God changed it to? That's right. I wonder how many of us know the difference between those two names. Well, if you look in a study and kind of some interlinear helps and so forth, what you might find is this. Abram seems to indicate this idea of exalted father. The idea of Abram as a name could primarily refer, in his case, to his ancestral lineage. In other words, Abram comes from a line of exalted fathers. There was a certain significance and importance to his father and so forth, and his name reflected that to some degree. But the Lord had other plans for Abram than just an ancestral lineage, an importance drawn from who went before him. Thus, the Lord changed his name. In changing his name from Abram to Abraham, now his name would communicate that he was not just an exalted father, or, or, or he didn't just come from a line of exalted fathers, but he indeed would be the father of a multitude, the father of many, the father of nations. And so you see, in Abram's name changing to Abraham, there was even a step of faith, or there was a promise, and there was a label attached to him that communicated God's purposes into the future. As we've remarked, as of yet, he has no child between him and the covenant wife, Sarah, no child of promise as of yet. Nevertheless, his name is changed to reflect that very thing. Now, in the context of the culture of the day, names were very significant and important. In our day and age, they've perhaps lost some of their meaning, and they become more of a convenient handle to distinguish someone from someone else and little more. But at this time, names were an identity marker. That which was an intrinsic quality about that person might assign for them or might establish for them a name. In other words, if you owned, say, thousands and thousands of acres of property, your name might actually change in the course of your life to reflect that. Maybe your name would mean property owner or a lord of a region or something like that. Suffice it to say, something unique is going on here. God changes Abram's name to Abraham in faith of an identity that is not yet intrinsic to him. In other words, isn't it a little presumptuous, his neighbors might ask, that you call yourself the father of multitudes and father of nations when you don't even have a child to you and Sarai's name? You know, what a grandiose fool. Nevertheless, if there was rebuke and ridicule and mockery 
that Abraham endured, Abraham endured as a result of his name change, he did so on faith, on the ground that his name represented the promise of what God could accomplish. Abraham had a different kind of name, whereas others, more commonly in culture, their name represented something they accomplished. Abraham's name represented something that God would accomplish. Abraham left, spent so many years wondering, why no child? Why no child? Well, one answer that becomes clear through the course of his life is that this will be a birth of a miraculous sort. This will be conception from the dead. This will be a picture of resurrection life. This will be a sovereign event. And so as Abraham ages, he begins to realize, if God is going to fill out my name with actual fulfillment, it's going to require the supernatural. It's going to require a miracle. Thus, Abraham, even in his name, stands for that which God alone can accomplish. And you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a name too. We sing about this. My name is written on his heart. My name is graven on his hands. Perhaps later we'll close with a passage from Revelation that talks about the significance of God's name for you and so on and so forth. Your name as a believer is also representative of something that you have not accomplished but God alone has acquired, has purchased, and has done for you. Namely, the gospel of Jesus Christ dying in your place as an act of sovereign grace now is your identity marker. Remember this, saints. Think of a thousand applications of this in a world that is obsessed, distracted, and waywardly searching for identity. Our culture is confused and upside down right now because people are placing their most important identities in things they can accomplish and things they event in their uh, ethnic backgrounds and their cultural preferences. They define themselves as against other people groups and so on and so forth. And they make up this whole slate of new, they think, and improved virtues by which they can set themselves apart as holier than their neighbor and so on and so forth. And what does it get them? It gets them in a tangled mess of self-incurred judgment. No, you understand that your identity is according to a name that you don't make for yourself, haven't acquired for yourself, and could never accomplish for yourself. Your identity, your name is given to you by a sovereign God who has saved you from your sin, set you apart, and marked you as his own. Remember 1 Peter 2? You are a chosen race. You are a unique people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. As the scriptures tell us, you are grafted into the lineage, the spiritual lineage of Abraham that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this is who you are. And this is not something that is prescribed by culture, by government, by a, you know, a bunch of movements and Facebook memes and Hashtag hermeneutics is one guy called it. No, this is the word of God and God's power and authority that ascribes to you your identity. And if you do that, and if you proclaim that, you will find a way to shine as a light in your culture, even as Abraham did in his. Now, Abraham, his name indicated that this would be an international covenant. Notice, no further has God assigned him the name Abraham than he expands on its meaning. For I have made you the father, verse 5, of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So you see, with further revelation, even in Abraham's own name and its connotations, its meaning, fulfillment, greater clarity as to how Genesis 12 will be fulfilled. Remember the early promise, that first appearing at Bethel upon entering Canaan? The Lord appeared to Abram and said, you will be a blessing to the nations. And here we see that actually through Abram and his lineage would be an international legacy. And so this blessing unto the nations would come by way of the lineage of the Messiah, that ultimate significant son who would declare across tribes, tongues, and cultures, according to Revelation 7-9, that the gospel goes forth to unify a people in Christ from every corner of the earth and from every corner of history. Revelation 7-9 declares that from every person, people, tribe, and tongue, and so forth, that he is assembling for himself a great kingdom, a great nation. And so Japheth and the coastlands, you kids remember that legacy? The coastlands represent the furthest regions, the outlying areas, the unreached people groups, the great expanse. 
The great expanse and teeming uh, multiplication of humanity would happen through Abraham, would happen through Ishmael, and through these other sons of Noah and so forth. But all of this multiplication, even up to today, producing for itself in the billions people, is a planted harvest from which or to which the sickle of the gospel will go and reap a gigantic harvest from across the span of history and peoples to the praise of His great name the Lord's great name. This is not something parochial. What does that mean? Limited to your own experience, limited to your own region. Abraham was an important man regionally, but this covenant was an international one. It was not parochial. An unbelieving skeptical worldview would have you believe that the Old Testament scriptures were confined in their worldview to just the experience of a particular, you know, out-of-the-way corner uh, nation nomadic tribe, and so forth, so forth, Stone Age goat herders, you might have heard that term. That's an evolutionary presupposition, which is absolutely false. On its own merits, you read these promises and these proclamations of covenant, and you see, no, not parochial in the least. In fact, this was an international worldview and vision, trans, if you will, historical vision, covering across the vast arc of history until God would acquire for himself a people from a multitude of nations. In this way, Abraham's name represents a redeeming through Abraham's lineage of the Adamic call. Remember, kids, what was the first commandment that God gave to Adam? First commandment God gave to Adam. Do not eat the fruit from the tree? There's one even before that. That's a negative command. This one was positive. It was the go be, remember, fruit, be be fruitful and multiply first commandment that God gave man even before the fall. Now notice how this commandment is redeemed through this covenant plan. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. The purpose of the fruitfulness of Adam was to go forth and to take dominion. And here in the royal context here and fruitfulness promise, we have in the name of Abraham wrapped up this vision for fruitfulness and dominion. Yes, in fact, I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Fruitfulness and royalty are redeemed somehow through the lineage of Abraham. How would this happen? Would there be born of Abraham, a significant son in the future, who would declare lordship over the whole earth? Who would be the perfect Adam where Adam himself failed? Who would be the second Adam to fulfill the covenant in his perfect law-keeping and indeed die in our place such that he could redeem what was lost in the fall? Amen. Yes, through the lineage of Abraham, there would come one. What does Matthew call him? The son of Abraham, the son of David. And who is that, kids? Who is the significant son? Who is the second Adam? Who is this? Yeah, and more specifically, Jesus Christ. That is correct. And so in Jesus Christ, Abraham's name and the promises are fulfilled. The call is redeemed. Fruitfulness and royalty are established. Dominion over the whole earth is progressing, and he is subjugating his enemies as, fo- as a footstool for his feet, even now as we march according to God's purposes across the span of time. So this brings up number three this morning, Sarah's name. We're exploring the context of covenant clarified through God's name, El Shaddai, Abram's name, and now Sarah's name. There's some overlap with Abraham in this regard. After all, she's his wife. In verses 15 through 17, we read, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of the people shall come from her. And after this, we see Abram fell on his face and laughed. He said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And we see, in fact, this laughter will be turned to joy in due course, as by this time the text records next year, they would actually be pregnant. They would have a son named Isaac. Suffice it to say, Sarai's name is changed as well. Does anyone know what Sarah means, the name? Uh, My sister's name is Sarah. She probably knows. Put you on the spot. Does anyone know what Sarah means? Say it louder. Yeah, princess. Very good. The Sarah uh, has a designation of royalty. It means princess of royal blood or royal line. 
of royal blood in Sarah's case, and as her names change, much like Abram, indicating that she will not only belong to royal blood, but she will birth royal blood. Psalm 113.9, Isaiah 54.1, Galatians 4.27. I'll just list those again if you want to mark them down. Psalm 113.9, Isaiah 54.1, Galatians 4.27. Those are references prophetically to Sarah's experience and the experience of other barren women who rejoice to become the mother of children through covenant history. I want you to consider Sarah's name juxtaposed against the despair in the prior chapter. She is absolutely shamed and discouraged because she has been promised children, has not had them yet, her womb long since dead. She's pushing 90, and so she comes up with a scheme to take Hagar, Just like Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband, she takes her mistress, gives her to Abram, so that and she seeks to build a family, as it were, a lineage by this means. Does this help or does this hurt as far as her peace and joy are concerned? Oh, it really hurts. Now insult to injury is added in Sarai's experience. Not only does she despair for not even a child, but she is now contemptuously viewed by her mistress and strife has taken over the family such that the two can't get along and Hagar is sent away. But notice how the power and promises of God reverse the fortunes of Sarah. And her name changing from Sarai, Sarai to Sarah is also the change in her fortunes. Now the barren woman will rejoice to become the mother of children. And again I ask, why did God wait so long? To emphasize that this is an extraordinary conception, an absolutely miraculous conception. Can anyone think of another extraordinary conception? A birth, a conception in the womb of a woman that is absolutely supernatural. Can anyone think of another one? How about Mary? A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, the prophet says, and so it is in time. When the Holy Spirit hovers over her and she is conceived, and she conceives again, an extraordinary conception takes place. She can be counted along with Sarai, who becomes Sarah, the barren, as as it were, rejoices to become the mother of children. Joining the confession of Elizabeth, her cousin, and Hannah of old, now the Lord is accomplishing something quite special, quite amazing through these appointed women. Some say the Bible has a low view of women, and they are deceived. They're fools, and they are rebels against the truth of God's holy word. God has exalted and prescribed a particular place of privilege for every one of His saints and every one that He has designed. We're in such a confused, rebellious state these days that we even reject the categories of men and women altogether. We do so at our own peril. If you want to lose confidence and consolation and meaning and assurance and joy and security and hope, Why don't you just rearrange the whole created order and erase the very terms and very conditions that God deployed to accomplish redemption, naturally speaking, in the first place? And what will you have? You'll have a confused, a self-contradictory, suicidal culture that has lost the hope of eternity. God has purposes in allowing shame for a season in Sarah. So that barrenness will give way to joy when a miraculous conception occurs. You and I can relate to a miraculous conception. Why? Because we were born again. We were born again, much like uh, Jesus Christ was conceived in the womb, by a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit. So we can relate to this idea, this concept of believers, of God turning despair and judgment into joy. Sarah's name represents this. More than this, she will become a mother of nations, if you will. She shall become nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. In Galatians 4, really the question is, uh, who is your mother? And uh, Ishmael's mother was Hagar, representing that which was sought, people seek to accomplish according to the flesh. Isaac's mother was Sarah, which represents that which is accomplished according to the promise. So it makes all the difference, covenantally speaking, if you will, who your mother is. And in Christ, our mother, so to speak, goes all the way back to these moments where Sarah was given the glorious privilege of bearing the child of promise, Isaac, by miraculous conception, who would then be included in a long line and would 
uh, culminate in a miraculous conception of a virgin who would bear Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who would redeem mankind. And to this one, he will receive an inheritance according to Psalm 2. In fact, all the nations of the earth are his. So through her lineage, Sarah becomes not just a princess, but a queen, if you will. She becomes the mother of peoples. She becomes the progenitor, if you will, of nations. And through her son, all the nations will one day be subject and redeemed as the fullness of God's promise works out in history. Last name this morning, and more briefly, context of covenant clarified through. We've considered God's name, El Shaddai, Abraham's name, Sarah's name, and finally, Isaac's name, the child of promise. Verse 18, and Abram said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Why did Abraham um, cry out this way? Because no doubt in his mind, he considered Ishmael the most likely option to fulfill the promise of an important lineage of a son to come. And no doubt now 13 years removed from his birth, Abraham has grown, Abraham has grown quite attached to his son and probably invested a lot of his hope in the future of this child. But God corrects him and brings him back to the clarity and precision of the promise. God says, verse 19, No, but Sarah your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name his. What was Sarah's son's name? Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Isaac's name, does anyone know what it means? Name Isaac means he laughs or laughter. Isaac is the child of promise, actually named for the first impressions of the promise that his parents uh, that it, that his parents gave. So Abraham fell on his face and laughed at the sound of God's promise that he in his 99th year, 100th year, would have a child. That's 1717. Abraham fell on his face and laughed. How did Sarah respond to the news? The next chapter records her response, verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? They think it's hilarious. It's sort of, I imagine, a skeptical and cynical laugh. But Isaac's name represents redeeming laughter. At the risk of sounding trite, Quite literally, you could say, in this circumstance, God gets the last laugh. And in getting the last laugh, he names the child of promise laughter. Another way to look at it, expressions of cynical doubt give way to contagious joy. Can you, have you ever been so happy that a smile was not sufficient? Have you ever been so overjoyed that you burst forth spontaneously into laughter because the feelings and the uh, response to something of such great value just overflows. Well, this is the kind of laughter that Isaac represented. Laughs of cynicism are transformed. They are redeemed. They are, in fact, repented of, if you will, into laughs of contagious joy. God redeems laughter, He redeems the plight, and even the heart, and even the affections, and the disposition, and the faith, causing it to grow of His servants, Abraham and Sarah, and giving them the last laugh, and uh, giving them the child of promise, laughter was His name, Isaac. Now, this promise was an everlasting one. This promise would extend even to us. So if, as we close this message, would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, verse 12? We're exploring the significance of names, El Shaddai, Abram, Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac in the context of covenant. So you might ask, what about our name? Is there such a thing as a divine name ascribed to us by God Himself? Well, yes, the everlasting nature of this covenant will produce, as we've seen in our passage, offspring on into the future many of whom are coming into the covenant even today. And we read of them by promise, and we read of them by fulfillment in Revelation 3. This is the letter to the church in Sardis. 
And as John gives instructions to the church, remember, who are they? Called out believers in a pagan culture. He says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Names in Sardis. And the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Um, And in this next passage, uh, addressed to the church of Philadelphia in verse 12, we have this. The one who conquers, I I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you remember earlier in the message, Abraham is laying down on the ground, and God the Sovereign is standing over him in this picture. Who has the authority to name who in this instance? Kids, who has the authority to give you your name? Who gave you your name, Theo? Who gave you your name? Yeah, mom and dad. So the parent, the one who who, uh, had the child, is the sovereign in a limited way in that relationship, if you will, and ascribes to their child that name. That child isn't immediately, doesn't immediately identify with that name, but as they grow, they come to know themselves in the context of what their parents have done to establish this parameter of relationship. And so it is in our relationship with the Lord. It only makes sense that if we are born again, if we have a new father, that he would give us, if you will, a new name, ascribe to us a unique and new identity. And we see here an overflowing meaning packed into this uh, power of God, the authority and the purposes of God to ascribe to us an identity and a name. When the Lord gives us a name, he writes it indelibly in the book of life. We are accounted among his own. When the Lord gives us a name, he is claiming us as his adopted son and daughter. And according to this arrangement, we cry out, Abba, or Father, unto him. When the Lord gives us a name, he gives us, if you will, a certificate of citizenship to the new heavens and the new earth. And upon us is stamped that visa, if you will, of heaven one day and glory eternal. This is what is involved with God the Sovereign, our Lord, our Messiah, our Father, ascribing to us in His authority, according to the work of His Son to die in our place, a new identity. Names are extremely important in the context of covenant. Just as God is powerful to accomplish His promise, revealed so in His name El Shaddai, so the fulfillment of the same is evident through the course of history as He changes Abram's name to Abraham in order to reflect His accomplished promises in giving him a son in his old age. As He changes Sarai's name to Sarah, indicating that she will be of a royal line and become the mother of nations. As he ascribes to Isaac, as yet unborn, the name of laughter to show how he will redeem cynicism into overflowing praise. And even as he ascribes to Ishmael sovereign purpose as well, giving him a name, God, who hears. And finally, we can relate to this, believers in this room, in the sound of this message, because if Christ is your Redeemer and God is your Father, He has given you a new name, a new identity in Him. And this is amazing. It communicates the significance of God's choice in names as we look at Genesis 17. And remember that Abram, Sarai, Isaac, Ishmael, they're not the only ones who were given names. So were you. And I encourage you as a believer to look at your birth certificate and Revelation chapter 3 later on this week and understand more of God's glory and your identity in Him. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we're so thankful for how you reveal yourself across the pages of Scripture in the course of history and how amazing your power to redeem truly is. We thank you that in you is the power and promises to to prescribe and to accomplish that which you intend to do. 
Lord, I pray that you would greatly encourage and equip your church to stand in a day of such confusion, all the more boldly, all the more clearly, proclaiming that there is salvation and identity in Christ alone. We thank you, Father, that we have evidence of the faithful who have gone before, and their story is recorded in part for our encouragement that though there are times of discouragement, despair, and long periods of waiting, nevertheless, we can be absolutely certain that what you promise, you will fulfill. Finally, this morning, if there are any in the hearing of this message who do not resonate personally with the terms of relationship, name, and identity that we've been given because they are of as of yet, children of the devil. They have not repented of their sins. They have not placed faith in you. I pray that you would cause such a heavy conviction to fall upon them, that they would understand their sin in light of a holy God, that they would seek for your forgiveness, forgiveness in the blood of Christ, reject that life and lifestyle, and turn to Jesus Christ and find in Him glorious new identity as His own. We thank you, Father, that all these things you accomplish to the praise of your great name, And I pray that you would encourage and equip your church to take ground for the kingdom of God as a result of the proclamation of your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.